Okay, Mitch. This is our uh, our tragic breakdown podcast. The Blue Jays made the playoffs. They lost in the playoffs. 18 innings. Everything's done. For all the talk about crowd and home field advantage and everything leading up to this, it all fell apart so quickly and so painfully. Yeah, life comes at you fast. Baseball games come at you fast. That was, uh, I think we both thought, or I don't want to speak for you, but I thought they'd probably win that series and then get their butts handed to them in the DS. Mm-hmm. Turns out the handing of butts came a few games early, but uh, they they went out in glorious fashion. I'll give them that. Like this, people aren't going to forget. I feel like you go back to 2020, everyone forgets those wild card series, those yeah. two out of threes. They like lost two to Tampa. Jamie Jansen hit two home runs. People aren't going to remember that in 20 years. People are going to remember those two games in 20 years. I'll tell you that. So that means anything. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a memorable thing. I feel like, yeah, if you're in the stands, like I get it. It's heartbreaking. If you're a Toronto fan, fine. And your heart's been stomped on every April by the Leafs anyways. But wouldn't you want to still be in the crowd for that kind of game? Like everyone's criticism about baseball, right? Is it slow and it's boring, but I mean, that was a thrilling game. Like, it was exciting. Like, even if you're a Blue Jays fan, I think, what I mean, the end result's brutal. But, like, what a journey it was, that that entire game. Yeah, I feel like it's much better than just losing 10 nothing. Like, it's because you got your money's worth. Everyone got their money's worth. Yeah. You got the high highs. You got the low lows. We were talking after that game where it's like, wow, this season really ended in mirrored ways where, like, they got down. I don't know what it was. Jose Barrios gave up a thousand runs in the first inning of the home opener. It's like tensions were so high going into the game and then the building immediately got zapped and then slowly and slowly and slowly and Teoscar Hernandez home runs. They came back and won that game kind of glorious comeback fashion. And they ended in the exact opposite. The only thing similar between those two games was that there was a big lead and some big Teoscar Hernandez home runs. Everything else was the exact opposite. Yeah. I think there's history on both ends too. Like I think that was the largest opening day comeback right I'm, I'm not 100 sure i'd have to check I think it the, tied it maybe that's story yeah in like mlb history and then to bookend it with a gloriously dramatic collapse in that your seven run lead was the blown seven run lead was the largest you know loss at home in playoff history so yikes I feel like that's a kind of a good encapsulation of the Jays though. We talked all season about how like they didn't necessarily play with consistency. They were such a streaky team. And then arguably the two biggest games of their season had like three inning massive swings of streaks, even within the individual game. So I think looking back, maybe a lack of consistency or a lack of like really putting everything together for an entire large stretch or even an entire nine innings in the biggest game of their season will be kind of the story of the 2022 Blue Jays. Yeah, and we'll see if it's the story of the 2023 Blue Jays. Um, but first, let, let's let do a little post-mortem. I mean, everyone's talking about the, the Timmy Meza situation. Gosman coming out early, according to some folks. Um, I've done a piece kind of on that whole situation for Yahoo Sports. Uh, Mitch and I have talked about it plenty, but for all our listeners, I mean, where do you stand on, on that uh, fateful sixth inning? Who would have thought a, a sixth? Like the game was still first off, the game was still they were up three after that inning. I don't know why everyone's really honing in on that decision there. It's still a super winnable ball game, but yeah. So what happened? Just so then we can talk about the decisions off of this is Gosman gave up three singles, got two outs, 
in the top of the six. The bases were loaded, two outs. Jay's up seven at that point. Yeah. Six. Eight. No, seven. Yeah, they're up seven. Okay. And then so the decision is made to go to Tim Mesa to face Carlos Santana. Switch him around. You look at his splits this year. He hits left-handed pitching better, just objectively. It's hard to argue that otherwise. I know Ross Atkins said in his post debrief that there's a bunch of other things they look at, and I'm sure there are, like ground balls, like uh, getting under the ball, the likelihood of hitting a home run and like clearing those bases versus just a single is definitely in play. But I think, and we talked about this as the decision was being made during the game, I think if you were going to go to Mesa there, I would have gone to him the batter before. I know a lot of people are talking about giving Gosman Santana, giving him one more. I was ready to go to Mesa when Adam Frazier was coming up. Mm -hmm. We were looking at Frazier's splits before that game, how he dominated Gosman. I believe he got a hit earlier in the contest. Like Gosman got him out, so obviously that wasn't the right move uh, if I was the manager because Gosman got the out anyways. But I do think it was a weird timing to bring in Mesa. I don't think it changed the season. I don't think it changed the game. Like Kevin Gosman could have just as easily given up that big shot to Santana as Tim Mesa. He made a good pitch. It was right on the bottom of the black, the sinker that he's kind of relied on all season. And Santana was just on it and just as likely would have been on a splitter in the same location. Yeah, agree, agree, agree. Um, and Santana, the I think the look with him right-handed was that that his average launch angle was like nine or 10 degrees. So like he hit, he hits the ball hard against lefties from what I looked at. Um, but for the most part, that's line drives or lower. Um, not necessarily the launch angle that would, you know, uh, produce uh, consistent home runs. I don't think there's many 10 degree launch angle home runs unless uh, you're Vlad, Guerrero, Vlad Guerrero Jr. <laughs> um, yeah. There's also the element there that Santana missed a home run off Gosman by like, six inches earlier like right off the top of the wall uh, um a run scoring double that was reviewed anyways to see if they it was a home run because it, it was so close to 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 going out um but it, it bounced back in so yeah agree 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 on that and then Mesa you know he makes a bad pitch with a fastball that scores a run um but that 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 home run that made it eight to five didn't necessarily swing the entire game it definitely started seattle's comeback um but i think anthony bass is uh, uh kind of responsible for for the rest of the momentum coming uh in seattle's favor so the jays blew it right romano stood up and took a lot of the heat um he was obviously devastated you know it, it, truly like i mean he gave up some hits right and he gave up the ninth inning double Two, du two doubles? Yeah, two straight doubles yeah. or two doubles by Cal Rally and uh, Adam Frazier. So, I mean, he's on the hook for that one. He did a good job, I think, working out of the bases loaded situation in the eighth inning. But so he he was, I guess you could say, accountable, right? And this is kind of what some of our uh, colleagues have been probing at with accountability. And I think overall, you know, fans are looking um people look for someone to blame, right? And and people to take ownership. I know now we're, you know, just about a week removed from, from the loss, but in terms of accountability or guys, you know, standing up and saying, you know, this was my fault. I mean, did you see enough of that? And do you think, you know, on, on a different note that that's even needed? Yeah, I think it's a good question because I do think there's a reasonable case to be made that like the lack of accountability breeds complacency. I think that's, that's fair. And I think we've saw that at 
times this year with the Blue Jays. Like, I think that was a part of the reason Charlie Montoya got got fired because, like, not playing up to this team's expectations was seen as okay because they were in a playoff spot. I'm not in the clubhouse. I don't know that for sure, but that's just kind of the perception I got. And so I understand that people want people to put their hands up and say, hey, that one's on me. Or the manager to say, hey, that one's on X, Y, Z. But the thing about an 8-1, 7-1 lead is like everyone's got to mess up for you to blow that. That's not one person blowing a game away. Like every single person on that roster was a major league caliber player. And there was like four or five guys who just straight got beat by the Mariners to blow the lead. So there is no one person to blame. It's not like a goalie in hockey who just doesn't have it on one day or your starting pitcher just didn't have it because like, Kevin Gosman was really good. Certainly was not Kevin Gosman's fault, even though he got tagged with a couple extra runs there with the Santana homer. But uh, I think it is kind of a general accountability. Like as long as the team knows that like that was unacceptable, blowing a 7-1 lead in a playoff game is unacceptable. And like, if they don't know that, they got like bigger problems. I'm sure they're professional athletes. I'm sure they're not quite satisfied with that. But I don't think it. you need individual guys to put your hand up. And I certainly don't think it was Jordan Romano's fault. I thought he made his pitches. I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, that ninth inning run's probably on him. But, like, he had a seven-run lead. You probably shouldn't be in a situation where one ninth inning run is uh, matters that much. Do you, do you see it differently, yeah. similarly? I mean, baseball is an individual sport within a team sport, right? So there are big moments where, like, let's say there's like a Bill Buckner error, like, you know, it goes through a guy's legs and that decides the game. There wasn't really any of that, right? It was just like chip away, chip away until like the game, the momentum was tied. Like it's not on Bo Bichette for running into George Springer. Like these are just things that, that happened. I think Toronto was very unlucky and accountability in baseball is interesting, but ultimately you, I think you win and lose as a team, right? Like I still even think in, in the innings, after Toronto had the game tied up or they were trailing. Like, I still think those at bats were okay. Like they fought guys got on base. Like I think, yeah, I I don't think in baseball guys need to stand up and say, this is on me. Um, I mean, I've seen it. I had a chance to cover the Tampa Bay Rays this year and Kevin Kiermaier made like, he made an error in one of the games in center field. He dropped a fly ball and you know, a couple runs scored, but that wasn't really, it decided the game at the time. And then, you know, Tampa had a lot of time to score after, but they didn't. And he like called all the reporters to his locker room was like, Hey, listen, like this one's on me. He did something like that. So, I mean, is that a veteran move? Is it necessary in the, you know, the aftermath of all the pain of an eight run comeback? It's, it's all interesting. I think the Toronto media market probably wants something like that, but uh, I, I didn't really have any issues with how, how the accountability aspect played out, but there wasn't, there wasn't like, there wasn't a ton of reflection, I guess, on the accountability part from John Schneider. Like he mentioned, um, you know, how much this team will learn from it, how much he loves this team and trusts them, which I think is the right attitude. And it's, it's something he's preached all season. Um, but in terms of accountability, I think Schneider's actually done a better job than most people see. I think he rides Vlad pretty hard. I think harder than people think um, because he knows those guys. And I think he knows how to motivate them. And that's why, you know, he's considered the favorite to come back next season. I mean, Ross Atkins was pretty played his cards pretty close to the chest. He wasn't really ready to give us too much, but 
you know, he did say that there's, there, what did he say? Not, not better candidates. It'd be hard there. to get a better, to find someone better than John Schneider, yeah. which is like all very like, you know, um, I don't know, Ross, the, the way he talks sometimes, be- he doesn't give us much. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, do you think Schneider's going to be back? Should he be back? Uh, is this the right move for Toronto? Yeah, I think 90% chance is probably where I'm willing to put it. Like, I'm willing to be surprised, but I will be surprised if it's not John Schneider. And I think there's a chance, like, if Schneider doesn't come back, it's as much a Schneider decision as, as it is yeah. an Atkins decision. Like, he's got to figure out if it's the job for him. Like, it is. He said all year it is the job for him, but, like, maybe he has second thoughts. Maybe someone else approaches him and says, like, hey, Buck Walter just got fired. We want a new manager for the Mets. And he's like, wow, moving to New York would be sick. Like, that's not going to happen, but... Like, there's a chance that there's other openings. Goes to Miami. For. Yeah, well, I'm, I would move to Miami happily. Good good weather, low tax, let's go. Yeah. I mean, he looks um, but cool. yeah, I think I think Schneider will be the manager next year. I think he is the guy for this young group. Like, I know that was kind of said about Montoyo, but like, like, he got them over the hump this year. They went from not making the playoffs to making the playoffs. So I think he deserves a shot to get them over the next hump now, which is like turning this team into a serious World Series contender. Mm-hmm. And there's also the, the aspect of like, who are the better candidates, right? And who knows this team better than he does? You know, I mean, I didn't see anything dramatic in the way that he led the ball club, or I, I actually quite enjoyed his on field strategy, his bullpen usage for as controversial as it was in the playoffs, I think for the season was pretty solid, at least from our perspective. Um, you know, the Jays probably will interview other candidates. Um, but I don't really see a ton of guys who come in here and, and replace Schneider. Like there is, you know, there's, there's a, there's a school of thought where it's like, okay, did they bring in an old school manager? Do they bring in a, a Girardi or a um, let's say for whatever reason, Terry Francona doesn't return to Cleveland. Like, did they bring in that type of guy? And like, I kind of just cringe. I'm like, I don't know if that is the type of leader that would, you know, succeed in Toronto's clubhouse. Right. Cause there are talks about, in Philadelphia with Girardi at the helm, you know, guys being kind of afraid to make mistakes a little bit and being a little bit wound tightly. And I feel like that is just the absolute opposite of what would uh, benefit Toronto. So I think Schneider's, you know, easygoing and Ross Stripling put it best, right. When he talked to us, he said, you know, he's a, he does a good job at being one of the guys, you know, but also keeping us accountable, you know, like he's, he's young, he's a fun manager um, but he also still is a manager and, and he's a good leader and an outspoken leader. And I think uh, a leader that should be back. Agreed. Agree, agree, agree. We're going to be in lockstep here for a lot of stuff. Maybe, <laughs> maybe eventually we'll start disagreeing. I think if they're going to like, you talk about that veteran guy type, Casey Candell was the interim bench coach for the second half of the season. There's a chance he's back, but I also think there's a chance that they bring in kind of that veteran voice that maybe more the bad cop at in some points in that bench coach role and i think there's a chance that if they bring schneider back schneider will get to pick his bench coach in or have a large say in his bench coach when he probably didn't have a whole lot of say in candell i think we both like casey we think he's a great person a great coach but i think there's a chance if we're going to see big change there's a chance it's in that bench coach role yeah and casey's not exactly bad cop no good cop it's good cop better cop yeah (laughs) um yeah, I mean, we'll see how that plays out. Schneider checks all the boxes. And yeah, well, I'm interested to see how the staff shakes out. I mean, 
You got to think Pete Walker's coming back. I don't know why he wouldn't. Uh, imagine Guillermo Martinez, the hitting coach. He's probably coming back too. Um, and then we'll see from there. I mean, uh, I guess this this coaching staff was assembled for Charlie Montoyo, sort of, right? So, I mean, Schneider got his promotions and he got the job, so we'll see how the staff unfolds behind him. Moving to the offseason, and it's unfortunate Sorry, Blue Jays listeners, that this is what we're chatting about on October 14th. The season was still alive just uh, six days ago, but that's that's the state of things right now. And it sucks that, you know, Jays fans got to go through it again, but that's where we're at. So offseason needs, I think, starting pitching is up there. Um, We'll agree on that one. But does Toronto have the financial flexibility to pursue a starting pitcher and if not, Mitch, what moves do you think they need to make to uh, to free up some salary? Yeah, I think if we see a big trade, it's for a starting pitcher. Because as much as Ross Atkins kind of pumped Jose Barrios' tires at the postseason press conference and said, we'll see what happens with Yusei Kikuchi and like maybe even Hunjin Ryu factors in late next year, I think they need to add a starting pitcher that they're comfortable throwing in a playoff game. Like, someone who can at worst be kind of your three, four alongside Barrios. Like they got the locks in Manoa and Gosman. Those are the one twos, but I think you need another guy who, if Barrios is going to have another down year can slide in above Barrios in that, in that rotation. doesn't necessarily have to be like a Carlos Rodon or an ace in free agency, but I think that's the spot. They probably make a trade. And I think if they make a big trade, it'll be sending out bats or prospects to bring in pitching and, uh, there's obvious names, Pablo Lopez, some guys kind of in that tier who would make a lot of sense. They get a young controllable mid rotation starter. Like that's the biggest box checked, I think. But I do think, yeah, like you mentioned dollars are going to matter now. Like, I don't think they can buy their way out of this problem. I would be very surprised if they sign another Kevin Gosman S contract, because then you got like crazy money tied up into like five rotation pieces, hoping that four of them are good. And I don't think that's good business, but uh, do you kind of agree that trade market, like, w- do you think they're going to send out a bat for a pitcher is probably the way we should ask this question. Yeah, I think so. And this is probably Ross Atkins most challenging off season. I think, right. Like with the money tied up to Kikuchi and, and Gosman and Barrios, I think that's like another one. If he doesn't come out next season and look dramatically different, I think Ross Atkins is starting to sweat if he's not sweating already. Um, yeah, but I think the good thing is Toronto's lineup is so deep. And again, we'll, we'll talk about this till the end of time, but their catching situation too is is solid. And I think if Toronto is smart, and I, I'm not a front office executive, so I don't know all the inner workings, but I think you have to look at your surplus and in where you, you fell short in the playoffs, right? So Gabby Moreno, as great as he might be, did not help you in the playoffs and probably won't help you in the playoffs in 2023, right? Like, I mean, marginally, maybe if Alejandro Kirk is injured, but you're thinking that in 2023, Jansen and Kirk are going to be back doing the same thing, right? And when you also look at the 2022 playoffs, I mean, who wasn't in the lineup? Well, Lourdes Gurriel wasn't in the lineup. Um, He could be a guy, I think, that goes in the other direction. It depends how highly the rest of the industry values him. And Teoscar Hernandez, right? They're both free agents uh, after the 2023 season. So I could see them um, 
going out because again Toronto's lineup is just just so deep. Um, but here here let's let's transition it to this because I think starting pitching is a need. I think a Pablo Lopez deal makes sense. I don't know how high the rest of the league is on Toronto's prospects anymore. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we saw the return for Jordan Groshans, right? There's two relievers. There's like one leverage reliever, I think you can call Tony Bass a leverage reliever, but like not a, a shutdown eighth inning guy. And then like Zach Pop, who's like a middle of the bullpen, you know, controllable guy. And that was for, you know, a first round pick a few years ago, right? I don't think Toronto's pro, I mean, how do you think, let's say, the development of, the Jays farm system is going to line them up for 2023 free agency and in that trade season, GM meetings, winter meetings, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think the biggest issue is kind of aside from Tiedemann, the highest upside prospects are the guys you just drafted. Mm-hmm. And they very rarely get traded like this early. Not, not often is Gunnar Hogland getting shipped out for Matt Chapman after yeah. not even pitching a game for the blue in the blue Jays minors. So that's, that's going to make it challenging. Like the, the middle of their, prospect pool is not necessarily highly regarded it's really a relvis and tiedemann and even a relvis i think the, the valuations differ drastically across the industry so unless you find a great fit there you're probably dealing off the major league roster yeah and i think that's kind of what you're getting at and like the obvious names are the two corner outfielders teoscar and uh and, and lourdes who but the big issue with them is they both have one year left so you got to find a very niche trade fit for a team that's trying to win now that wants a year of Teoscar Hernandez or Lourdes Gurriel Jr., but also has starting pitching to give up, which is like, is there a team that fits that description in Major League Baseball? I don't know. Like, so I think it's the catching is probably where you make the move, where you make the big move. And the question then becomes like, so do you move out Teoscar Hernandez to clear? in maybe more of a money clearing move. Like you go out and get a, a force starter for Teoscar Hernandez, who you admit is like probably not the greatest value wise return, but you clear money and then you trade a catcher for another outfielder and then sign a, a starting pitcher. Like, I don't think it's going to be like players out solutions to the holes in. I think it's going to be kind of more of a jigsaw puzzle where money definitely comes into play. And you're looking at the dollars guys are making to free up free agency money to address one of the holes. Mm-hmm. And I think like I see Dylan Carlson and Brian Reynolds as two very interesting fits for that outfield play. Like I think those are two teams who need catching who value catching. And so you move out maybe a catcher to one of those NL central teams, bring back an outfielder, trade an outfielder, bring back a, a pitcher. Like I think it's going to be a lot of moving pieces like that. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's interesting. You mentioned the salary because like Teoscar Hernandez, MLB Trade Rumors has him here projected to earn $14 million in arbitration. That's, a lot I mean, that's, that's chunky, right? That's a lot. Um, that would make him one of the their higher paid position players. So um, I agree. It's going to be a lot of swapping in and out. Um, and maybe last season, you know, we talked about like a... I'm sure on our podcast, as the lockout was crushing our souls, we talked about some deals that might happen once it opened up. And the idea of like a one-year, $20 million deal to someone like Kenley Jansen, like a a big-time reliever, and like everyone will point at the bullpen after this playoff series, and, you know, maybe for good reason, but is this the offseason that we see that kind of deal? I mean, my gut tells me no. I don't think 
I, I'm okay with running this bullpen back. I mean, it's basically all the same. I mean, you're going to get probably Nate Pearson in that bullpen, I imagine, to start. <laughs> you, you laugh because that's an October 14th. Thing. It's the first mention of Nate Pearson in the offseason. Jot it down. This will not be the last of Nate Pearson. No, it won't. And he's not the answer, obviously. But, it, like, is there room for a big-time reliever? Like, a big-time reliever? I don't know. I'll pitch that question to you, and then I'll pull up the pending relievers to be, maybe, and we'll take a quick look. But do you get the feeling that this that's what this bullpen needs? I think if there wasn't such starting pitching needs, it would be more likely. Because I, I do think there is kind of a perception on the Jays that they don't like spending on relief. And how I kind of more understand it from conversations with people is like they didn't think they were at the position to be spending on relief yet. Like, I think they view it as that's like the last piece to the puzzle. Like when you're a World Series contender and then you go into an offseason, that's when you add the big relief arm. That's the last piece to put you over the edge. I don't think the Jays really viewed themselves as in that spot in this most recent offseason. Like, I think they thought they were really good, but they're like, okay, we'll go get that guy at the deadline. That guy kind of turned out to be Anthony Bass, but I think there is a spot now for one more reliever. Like, uh, Taylor Rogers didn't have a great year this year, but I think a second lefty like that, like, give me a funky lefty on this team. Matt Strom, Taylor Rogers, both free agents, I think. I think a guy like that would fit perfectly in this pen. And I think like the issue is the money. Like if you are doing that at the cost of adding a starter or cost of adding an outfielder, it's probably not a smart move, but I do think if they're going to add a big reliever, these next two off seasons, I wouldn't be shocked if they do it. So here are some of the notable free agent relievers at the very top, Mr. Timmy trumpet himself, Edwin Diaz, Mm -hmm. Uh, who I think will price himself out of Toronto's market. $200 million contract for Edwin Diaz. Yeah, I mean, he might get worth it. He might get nine digits. He might. Ken Lee Jansen, back on the market. Could see him re-upping with Atlanta again. Um, Zach Eflin, starter turned closer, right? I mean, he's a free agent. Is he a lefty? Sorry? Is he a lefty? No, he's a right-hander. Ah, okay. Taylor Rogers. David Robertson, who's got that calf injury from celebrating and won't pitch in the playoffs. Yikes. Very Joaquin Benoit from back in the day. Rafael Montero, Seth Lugo, Aroldis Chapman. That's not happening. Craig Kimbrell. Bad season. There's another not guy on who's... the playoff roster. Yeah. <laughs> There's another guy who's a candidate for a one year deal. Uh, and Corey Knable. And the list goes on and on, yada, yada. So there are some options. I think you're right, though. I think from our conversations with Ross Atkins, it's more about, like, you can kind of find relievers wherever or you can scrape together some relievers. I don't think, like you said, this is a team that sees that as an immediate priority. So, yeah, I could see them holding off. Um, So starting pitching... I mean, we can do a left-handed bat, right? Like, I mean, that's another conference. It, it's like a broken record. Every all the offseason three offseasons like this in the same talking points: pitching, defense, left-handed bat. Well, defense, I think they've addressed now. So cross that one off. We'll never revisit it. Outfield defense, maybe, right? Like, I think there is hitters. a chance that, like, especially if you move to Oscar. Like, I think we're looking at a big shift of puzzle pieces if that happens. Like, I think then you kind of pencil in 
George Springer more into like a 50-50 center field, right field split. And that's when you could see a big, like Brandon Nimmo would make a lot of sense if they do that. Like a, a center field, right field, left-handed complement to that outfield would make a lot of sense. But then like, then you've used your money on the outfielder and then you don't aggress pitching. I think it all comes back to how cheap can they get the mid-rotation pitching and that'll decide how much money they spend on the bats or how how flexible they can be on the bats. Mm-hmm. Are you of the belief that the team needs a blockbuster trade, a core shifting trade? Shohei Otani would look really good on this team. He fits, he fixes two of their three biggest issues with one player, starting pitching, left-handed bat, same guy. I just think the issue is like, you're not giving up Boba in that trade. And then like, then what? I don't think you get him from Moreno. Tito, no, maybe you have to but give I, up. Boba I feel Shet. like someone else beats that offer, but yeah, you would. Otani would look really good on the scene. I'll say that. I think the Jays of all like, there's a mix of they they don't need to make a move, but like if they make that kind of move, it it moves them into that serious contender tier, and that fits, and like they're a team that's trying to win right now, and so they are kind of the perfect. The only thing they're missing is like the super deep farm system that maybe one other team would have yeah. to, to become a better fit for Otani than them. Seem, seem, sounds like some glorious off-season content for us in the dark days of uh, in between the World Series and free agency. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's It's going to be an interesting off-season. Um, I, we might not see blockbuster moves, but there will be a lot of wheeling and dealing uh, for Toronto. Maybe before we wrap up this podcast and, and we... Before we jump into uh, podcasts down the road um, where we'll talk about free agency and some of the winter meetings, we can maybe talk about this current World Series chase. Is there a team that uh, that you like as a dark horse? Uh, is there a team you think that um, – well, maybe let's do, let's do AL and NL picks. I feel like that would be um, uh, the way to go. So on the spot, Mitch, you go first. I know we've talked about this, but I like the Cleveland Guardians a lot. Like I'm not that high on the Yankees. I watched a lot of Yankees baseball this offseason, but they did not look great down the stretch. Aside from Judge, there's not a whole lot of scariness in that lineup. And I think the Guardians kind of have a nice little mix of like the starting pitching you need to win in the playoffs, the two really good relief arms you need to win in the playoffs, and then just like a couple dudes who can make it happen. Josh Naylor, Jose Ramirez, those guys are kind of built for October. I like the Guardians. Like, obviously, the Astros and Dodgers, it's like I could just list them and walk away. But yeah. I do think Guardians, I'm a big fan of. I think they could surprise some people. They already have surprised some people, I would say. And then on the NL side, I'm not going to pick against the Dodgers, honestly. I, I think, like, the scary thing is this is like 80% of what the Dodgers could have been this season. Like, if Walker Bueller had a resurgent season, like, imagine how much better they could have been than they actually are. And I think they're far and away the best team in baseball. So Guardians Dodgers World Series is, is my shot that I'm calling. I, I think I think game two of this DS on the American League side will 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 decide it. Like I think if the Yankees win and they go up two nothing, I could see them like not not sweeping necessarily, but this this matchup is huge. Shane Bieber versus Nestor Cortez. I think we'll get to see kind of what true playoff Nestor is all about because Shane Bieber has been mighty fine. Uh, of late so tell you what if if seattle would have won they didn't if robbie ray didn't blow that game one and you know if they rallied for a comeback and well okay that, that that's not fair let's just say 
if it, if the series was one one in uh, on that side of the DS, I would pick Seattle to be honest to come out. I think Seattle could beat New York uh, if they could have rolled through Houston. Um, I don't think they're gonna at that point. I don't think Cleveland, even if they get through, will be able to beat Houston. So like I, I think I think Houston's going through, but in the NL, I think there's a little bit more parity in in my mind. Um, if the Phillies beat the Braves, I could see them beating the Dodgers. It would be wild that the way that roster is constructed, that they could <laughs> they the could go into Dodgers that were pressed thirty games in a season, then they're going to the World Series. That would be what a time to be a Phillies uh, fan. That's how I see it. Like, like the Padres kind of they're like got hot before the playoffs. They got you know rolled through the Mets, who were like n- neither you or I thought the Mets would lose, right? But Mets going to Mets, and they lost. Um, so, I mean, it can happen. And it kind of happened with the Dodgers last year, too, right? To the Braves in the CS? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right? Like, Atlanta came on really strong. Um, so, we'll see. Maybe Phillies, all those microwave DHs, uh, see what they can do. So, my my like final that. pick, just because I'm fun and I have no credibility, I will uh, I'll say Houston, Philadelphia. Love it. Love it. Bangers. A lot of really good left-handed home run bangers in the, in that world series. I like yeah. it. No kidding. Yeah. Well, we'll see if those predictions come true. And I guess we're not entirely sure when we'll record our next podcast. Um, but when we do, you know, we'll give you a rundown on the world series. We'll give you a rundown on what the blue Jays have been up to, what they haven't been up to, if it's going to be a, a slow off season, but uh, oh, we're going to get into the nitty gritty non-tender candidates so, next time. Just oh, wait, we will. It'll be like the lockout all over again, where we're just absolutely scraping the bottom of the barrel. We're back content. in two days with Arizona fall league stat, stat line updates. Let's go. Right. Who's going to be uh, on the 40 man to dodge the rule five draft. Um, that's, I mean, we might still do that anyways. We got so <laughs> much free time now. It's likely. I think. <laughs> Anyway, uh, a shout out to all our listeners this season. Um, we appreciate you guys so much. Mitch and I are, you know, only two years into doing this. Um, you know, we're one. Of, we're definitely the two two of the younger people on the beat. Um, so we appreciate the support. Um, and we've had a lot of fun. Hopefully, you guys have had fun too. I know the season didn't end so well. Um, a lot of pain, but hopefully, you're past that. I don't want to tell people how to grieve the Blue Jay season, but hopefully, uh, fans can can work past that. And uh, we can have a lot more fun going forward. Yeah, echoing that. It was it was a fun year, as uh, weirdly as it ended. But uh, I do think the offseason has its moments. I'm a big offseason guy, so we'll have some fun this winter, too.